Thank you so much for being here. It's very encouraging to us at Desiring God that uh, you care enough to join us here and think about important things under the banner of what Jesus demands from from the world. Uh, Even though Pat just led us uh, deeply into fellowship with the Lord and closed in prayer, I would like to just say one more word of prayer asking for the Lord's help for me and for you in this moment of, of worshiping over the word. So, Father, we want to ascribe to your Son right now all authority in heaven and on earth, just like he said. We just recognize it and we, we lift it up uh, in the face of the devil who would love to undo this and, and uh, make me sin and us together have a meaningless time together that would work all the wrong things. So he's lifting up the authority of Jesus Christ just like he said there in Matthew 28. And we ask that his promise, behold, I will be with you to the end of the age, would be especially, even palpably true in this room. I will be with you. I'm standing right here by you, John Piper, to protect you, to guard you, to correct you, to help you, and I'm, I'm all over this room with my people. So those two things, Lord, we acknowledge the authority of Jesus. We, we claim the promise of his abiding presence. And we now enter this word with him. Thank you for those promises. In Jesus' great name, amen. This is built around this book. Um, and let me just say a word about the way this book came into being. Uh, it's a thick book, and we only have two talks. And I'm like, how do you distill this into two talks? Um, I wrote this in the summer of 2006 over in Tyndale House in, in England on sabbatical. And most of the things I write are built on sermons. I, I take what I've done, and then I expand them into... This is, this is one of the books that didn't come into being that way. I started from scratch. I read the Gospels from beginning to end, all four of them, writing down or copying out on computer. Every imperative in the mouth of Jesus, there are about 500 of them, if you take the overlapping uh, Gospels. And then I stared at them for a few weeks, trying to group them into some kind of pattern. And then I began to, to write. And I just sat there for about... Um, about five months, and did nothing but but that. And now, I haven't done anything with this since it was published back then, and so I'm looking at it afresh, trying to distill it for you into a couple of messages, and frankly, I'm just loving it. (laughs) You're not supposed to love your own books, you know? This is very arrogant of me. Um, It's nothing new to the Lord, I'm sure. Um, But what the Lord enabled me to enjoy sitting in that little desk number eight in the library of Tyndale House in the summer of 06 all sort of flooded back to me. And uh, I love the Lord Jesus. I just love, I love his commanding, demanding reality because what I hope I can show you is that, yes, he has absolute right to demand of you anything he pleases, any time he pleases, and you may not argue with him at all, and that's the sweetest thing in the world. 
I just, I hope by the time we're done, that juxtaposition of demand and sweetness will not be an odd juxtaposition for you. That's one of my goals. Or, or another way to state the goal would be that I would like there to be, among us all, me included, a greater degree of God-glorifying obedience to Jesus. God-glorifying obedience to Jesus. So let me start uh, by focusing on why, why even stress obedience. And here's the reason. In fact, you could open your Bibles if you want. I'll be jumping all over the place. But the anchor text is Matthew 28, 18 to 20, called the Great Commission. And you need to understand, at least to get inside my head, you need to understand how prominent this text is in my life and I believe in the church's life. And uh, let's just read it first, and then, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump in at verse 19. Go, therefore, this is Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Note the word command. All that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now that text is very prominent in my own personal sense of calling. I've been at the church for 30 years and I, I consider it part of my pastoral identity and my uh, Christian identity that I am a mobilizer of young people and finishers and anybody in the middle who wants to complete the Great Commission. And I do believe it is finishable. The Lord will know when it's finished. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout all the uh, world as a testimony among all the nations, and then the end will come. And the Lord knows when it's done. We, we can know what's left to be done. If you go to joshuaproject.net, you will find 6,000 446, uh, just rounded off, 6,000 unreached people groups, what Jesus calls nations. Go make disciples of all these nations. And they've got categories like unreached, and they've got one called unengaged. Unreached, less than 2% evangelical Christian. Unengaged, no witness at all to Jesus Christ. Not missionary, not church not anything on the ground among those peoples. This exercises me. This troubles me. This is on me pretty much all the time. We have family devotions every morning and every evening. And in the morning, we read the Global Prayer Digest from the U.S. Center for World Mission. One page, and I've got Noel here and my 14-year-old daughter here. We did this through all my sons growing up. The Global Prayer Dachist has been around for a long time, and it's on a people group every day. And then we pray for them. This is just in the DNA of my family. It's in the DNA of my pastoral ministry. I am thinking, 
How can I be a means to this here in Vancouver? How can I be a means to this in my regular pastoral preaching? How can I be a means to this in pastoral conferences? How can I be a means to this when I go to Passion and talk to all those students? This is what's on my mind. I want to recruit martyr-ready people. This won't be finished without martyrs. It says that in Revelation 6. Hold still, you martyrs under the altar, until the full number of your brothers is complete. Most of the places that are unreached today don't want you to come. That's no reason not to go. So this text is huge to me and was the birth of this effort called What Jesus Demands from the World. As the Father has sent me from heaven to earth, so send I you from comfort to risk. This is the way it'll get done by following that. Now, in the middle of that great commission, make disciples of all nations, it says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And I asked myself years ago, who's that directed to? Me. How do I do it? This is my answer. Best I can do. And then this, this, these sessions are another part of my, my answer. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. He could have said, teach them all that I taught you. He could have said, teach them all that I preached to you. He could have said, teach them all that I revealed to you. And what he said was, teach all the world everything I commanded you. That's not what he said. Did you hear me misquote it? Teach them all I commanded you is not what he said. He said, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. There's a huge difference and it governs the way this book works and the way my mind works and the way these talks will work. You can teach a parrot all that he commanded. Love your enemies, love your enemies. You can. That's not what he said. That's easy. That's easy. You cannot teach a parrot to observe all that he said. You you can't teach a parrot to love his enemies. How in the world can you do this? Repent, worship, lay up. Treasures in heaven, love your enemies, go out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Hundreds of commands in the Gospels. Teaching parrots is easy. Teaching people to observe, that is keep, that is do the commandments, is impossible. How does a pastor 
a small group leader, a mom or a dad, teach someone in such a way that they do the impossible. Jesus said, remember the rich man? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's just boil it down. Give away everything you have. Give to the poor and uh, follow me. And he turns away, sorrowful, because he had a lot of money. And Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And, of course, they're stunned. And he responds, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So I take him to mean that if I undertake to fulfill Matthew 28, 20, teach the rich to renounce all that they have. That's a command in Luke 14, 33. Everybody should renounce all that he has. Zacchaeus gave away half of it. And Jesus said salvation has come to this house. So everybody doesn't have to give away everything. Zacchaeus gave away half. I don't know what your call is. But renounce it all because of the treasure that you found in in the field. Be ready to part with anything at any time because you have Jesus as a superior treasure. If I undertake to teach people to observe that, I undertake, Jesus says, the impossible. The humanly impossible. That's what he said. I cannot change people's hearts who are in love with their money or in love with their security or in love with anything, good or evil, more than they love Jesus. I I cannot make that happen. And yet, I'm told to. Go make disciples. Teaching. Teaching them to keep, observe all these radical commands. Go do that. I know it's impossible. Go do it. This, this, this affects me very deeply because I, I want to obey. I want to fulfill all of the Great Commission. I don't consider myself a very effective evangelist. I believe God has called me mainly to be the teacher for my people. And anybody else that will listen. But I see that as impossible. Evangelism is impossible. You can't raise the dead. And teaching is impossible. You can't cause people to keep these impossible commandments by the way you teach. Can you? Or, Or can you? We're still responsible. Call them impossible or whatever. You know, if, if you are so corrupt that you can't obey, you're still responsible to obey. The impossibility language here doesn't get anybody off the hook. It puts us more on the hook because we're so corrupt we can't. The can't is not a exculpation. You know that word? Doesn't get you off any hook. That's better. You're still guilty when you can't obey because the can't is rooted in corruption. It's rooted in my corruption. 
through teaching, he says. Through how can we cause people to observe all that Jesus commanded? And, and Jesus says, teach them. Teach them. That's what it says in verse 20 of Matthew 28. So he focuses on teaching. He could have said pray, and I'm sure he would say pray if we ask him, is there more to it? So, yeah, there's more to it, but I'm focusing on teaching. Love them, exhort them, come alongside them, be merciful to them. Lots, lots of things in the Bible about how to help people be changed, but right here it's teach them. Now, I said at the beginning, my aim is I want to fulfill this great commission meaning I want there to be more and more and more all over the world, more and more and more God-glorifying obedience to Jesus. Now, why do I stick on that little modifier, God-glorifying obedience? Why do you fasten that on the front of obedience? It's not in this text. And my answer is because Jesus said it. Jesus said it. And he said it in Matthew 5.16. You remember? Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works. Now, I take good works there to refer to do whatever I've commanded you. (laughs) Okay? The good works are all these things, these hundreds of exhortations and imperatives. Do those good works. That will be the shining of your light if you do them in a certain way. And people will give glory to your Father in heaven if you're doing these good works. So you see the connection between glory? This is where I'm getting it. God-glorifying obedience is a kind of obedience that calls attention to the glory of God. There is a kind of, quote, obedience that doesn't. The Pharisees were experts at it. They stood on the street corners and did what they were supposed to do, pray, so that they would be seen by men. And guess who got the glory? They did. And Jesus hated that. Who he hated the use of religion for that. Just nothing made him more angry. Not prostitution, not love of money, nothing made him more angry than the use of religion not to glorify God, but to glorify self. Which means what I'm doing right now is unbelievably dangerous, right? Standing in front of all you people. So the ultimate goal of the Great Commission is not simply that they observe all that he commanded, but that they observe it in such a way that God is glorified. That's the goal of the mission. That's the goal of of, of the universe. That's the goal of Jesus coming into the world is that the Father would be displayed as as beautiful and and valuable. So my question is, here I am sitting in Tyndale House or really sitting in life and in the ministry saying, how do you do this? How do you teach in such a way that the impossible God-glorifying obedience happens in the hearts of sinners. How do you do that? 
That's what drove the way the book is written and the way I'm trying to do these, these couple of messages. Here's my answer, or at least the first part of the answer. We do it by keeping the commandments of Jesus intimately, inextricably connected with his divine person and his atoning work. Okay, just get that, because I'm going to spend some time on that. By keeping the commandments, there's hundreds of commandments, and oh, how many people begin to disconnect them from their redemptive context, from the person who made them in his divine reality, and from the atoning work through which he's moving them into reality. If you begin to disconnect the commands of Jesus, you will become a first-class legalist. Or you'll become just an ethical do-gooder who has no connection. Mahatma Gandhi just admired the ethics of Jesus. He didn't believe anything he said about his person or his cross. But oh, nonviolence peacemakers. Just abstract. Pull them out. Pull them out. Disconnect them from the story and from the flow and from the work and from the person. It's being done all the time. It's amazing in in, in the United States anyway how disinclined people are in public to criticize Jesus. Some do. Not many. He's still got some capital. And so if you, if you pull the Jesus card on a, on a command or a quote, then, whoa, it's kind of hard to, well, that's your opinion, but, but they're not going to say, stupid, stupid Jesus. Hardly any, you, can't, you don't hear that on public radio. You might on some wacko talk show, but hardly anybody in public in America says, stupid Jesus. Nutcase. No, you don't. And so... The world is inclined to go and gather some commands and make use of them in their parenting, in the Boy Scouts, in the business world. Write a good best-selling minute manager type thing and say, even Jesus said, you know, work hard or something like that. It's just it's so, so disconnected with, with reality, of the reality of, of his person. So my answer, my first and basic answer to the question How do I teach in such a way as to bring about this this pervasive obedience to the impossible in a way that glorifies God? My answer is keep all the motivations and keep all the content of the commands intimately connected with the divine person and the atoning work of Jesus. So let me say a word about each of those, the person and the work. Let me slip in a parenthesis here about another agenda I had in writing this. I was writing this in a, in a very, very uh, high-powered academic library. So it kind of around me, this atmosphere. And I've been there. You know, I spent three years of my life and studying in Germany, and, and I spent six years teaching theology and biblical studies. And so I just kind of, ooh, I, just, I feel the stuff, this, 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 this 
first quest for the historical Jesus and second quest for the historical Jesus and third quest. And now it's probably dead and someday there'll be a fourth quest and this, this constant clawing of, of liberal, critical scholars to scrape away the incrustations of religious layerings and get back to the original, pristine historical Jesus, not this one. I'm there. I know this. I wrote a chapter on it in, in the book that I don't expect any of you to read. But a few scholars might be interested to know, does he know what he's talking about here? It, it is hugely important that we, we recognize that there's only one Jesus who over the centuries has had weight and force and reliable clout in the world. Only one, the one of the Gospels. As soon as you try to recreate a, a, a Jesus for atheists, that's a book I read when I was in graduate school, or a Jesus for Marxists, or a Jesus for peacemakers, or whatever, and, and they're just selective, and they're cutting away layer after layer that they think was added on to make him more domestic, what you have is a very trendy, domesticated Jesus that will be gone in 20 years. He'll be gone. Those of you who've been old enough, long enough, and read books, you remember books like the Passover plot. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Passover plot. Okay, good. Good. Like 2%. But it was all the rage when I was a junior in college. Everybody read that book. And how Jesus slipped out of the cross and didn't go to the grave and went off and, oh, man, everyone, woo, woo. This is new. This is, this is life-changing. It's gone. It's just gone. And Bart Ehrman will be gone. He will be. Take my word for it. He will be. Don't jump on those bandwagons. There is one Jesus who stays. The Jesus that you can put together from the documents as they stand. I really want to spare you a lot of misery here. I really do. Because if you get caught up in the academic effort to reconstruct another Jesus behind the text that we have, it will be fascinating. The, you'll just vibrate. You'll read a lot of cool books. You'll write about your Jesus who won't have all these things that this book says he has. And, 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 and you'll get a little following and you'll die and meet him as he is. And your view will be forgotten just like that. So I, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life on that. So who was he and what did he do that might make impossible obedience possible? And I'm going to get the answers just from this. I'm not going to try to weave my way down into some layering, like just beneath the layer to the oral tradition and just beneath the oral tradition to the pristine historical Jesus who... Back in when I was studying, it was Rudolf Bultmann was the main, and he thought Jesus said about six things that we could say for sure. And he built a whole theology on that. <laughs> you talk about speculation, like build a theology on six statements? That's going to be a lot of creativity. And it's going to be Bultmann's creativity, not Jesus. So I'm just going to answer the question, who was he? From him. Oh, I almost lost my thought here. I was going to tell you a hidden agenda I had. Now I remember it. The hidden agenda is I, I, want to, I wanted to write a book 
and now give some talks in which I would develop a words of Jesus and the gospel writers and never once quote any other part of the New Testament. So uh, if you go to the, New Te- the index here, you know how many scripture quotations there are in the index? 800, give or take 20. 800. You know how many there are from outside the gospels? Two. And I wish I'd left those out. So I could have said none. <laughs> because the goal was to to unpack Jesus as we have him in the Gospels so that when you're done, you would say, now this may not matter to you, but it matters to scholars. When you're done, you would say, my goodness, that sounds a lot like Paul. Which it does. There is such an effort in academia to try to make Jesus different from the apostles. He brought the kingdom and they preached the cross and they're not the same. Okay. The person. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. I glorified you, his work. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, the reason I quote those two texts, um, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, John 1. And I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work is to show you that his person and his work have the aim of glorifying God that's the reason for mentioning those two so my I'm trying to answer the question how can I help obedience happen that glorifies God and I answer by keeping them in close connection with person and work because in Jesus' mind, his person is the revelation of God. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And his work is the revelation of the glory of the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having completed the work you gave me to do. So if I can keep the commandments in close connection with the work and the person, then I'm going to be able to keep glorifying the Father because that's what Jesus said would happen. So I'm going to try to probe the meaning and the motivation of Jesus' commands in connection with his person, the worth of his person, and the effect of his atoning work. So let's sketch these. Um, His person and his work. He claimed to be the Messiah. You, remember he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, Christos, Mashiach. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. To which Jesus responded, remember, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Yes, you're right. I am the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of God. At his last 
trial, his trial, and the last part of it. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah? You understand, Greek, Christos, and Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah are the same. Every time you hear Christ, hear echoes, hear echoes of the Messiahship of, of Jesus. He said, are you the Christ, the son of the, of the blessed? And uh, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. So at the very moment when it was least likely that anybody could believe it or that anybody would invent it, he said, I am. I'm the Messiah. And you're going to see me come in glory someday. And they killed him. That was a good timing. Because, because had he said it too much earlier, you know what would have happened. They would have swept him up and made him king. So he was navigating this politically charged atmosphere with titles that were overloaded with dangerous revolutionary effect. Um, here's another one on, on Messiah and deity. Do you remember the time in the temple... Uh, they asked him a question, and he said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord said to David's Lord, the Messiah, the Lord said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies. And then, they, then Jesus says, David himself calls the Messiah Lord. So how is he his son? How is he his son? They had no answer. What was he saying? He was saying, your conception of the arrival of the Messiah as the son of David and therefore like David is half-truth. There's so much more. He's pointing lordship. He's the Lord of David. He's not just the normal human lineage of David. He is the so much more Lord of David. Jesus' favorite term for himself was what? Son of man. Eighty-two times in the Gospels and only four outside the Gospels. Why? Why wasn't his favorite term son of God or favorite term Messiah? He dodged terms like son of God and Messiah, not because they weren't true and not because he didn't use them sometimes, but because they were politically supercharged with revolutionary import. And had he gone blowing the horn of his kingly messiahship, they would have done what they almost did in John 6, where they wanted to take and make him king. And he meant to be killed, not crowned. And so he had to find a a title, and he chose Son of Man because it was a kind of a double entendre, kind of a double meaning. Son of Man, just ordinary. Every, all, all men are Son of Man. Even women are Son of Man. And 
uh, it's just kind of human. And yet, that amazing use of the term in Daniel 7, I'll read that to you and you can, you can see what he's um, hinting at probably. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom and all the people's nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. That's one like a son of man receiving a kingdom like that. And yet, in the milieu of Jesus, term son of man was not broadly considered to be an exalted title. And so he was, he was navigating his way carefully to murder, be murdered. And son of man caught his humanity and it caught his exaltation in a way that didn't too quickly result in his acclaim. Just one or two others on his person. <laughs> I can remember back in 1977, I wrote a poem about this. I think I've lost it, but I remember the punchline. Uh, and the punch, because the punchline was this text right here. John 8:58. I think I said something like, once there was a man who was walking down a dusty road in Palestine, and he casually looked over his shoulder and said to his friends, before Abraham was, I am. And he did. That's John eight fifty eight. What in the world? Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, the, that is a double blasphemous statement if it's not true, right? Number one, it's preexistence. And number two, I am. The name of God in, in uh, Exodus 3. Or... John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, or John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. So my comment about his person is that he was Messiah, uh, which meant he was the King of Israel, and he was a son of God, son of man. He existed before Abraham. He claimed to be the I am, for starters. In other words, Jesus had a very exalted sense of his own being and his mission. Now, what about, um, what about his, his work? Um, well, let's go at it this way. Because he was Messiah, he was bringing the kingdom, he said. So kingdom of God is absolutely huge in in the Gospels. Um, the long-awaited kingdom of God is now coming. The Jewish people expected what? Um, enemies of Israel would be defeated. Sins would be wiped away. Diseases would be healed. Dead would be raised. Righteousness and joy and peace would hold sway. Messiah would reign on his throne in a, in a politically, earthly, manifest Way And now Jesus comes and he says, it's here. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. So the kingdom is arriving. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Meaning... I'm the king. 
and I'm here, the kingly rule of God that you've long expected is here. Or um, Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But you remember, don't you, he said to his disciples, for those outside, everything is in parables. But to you, I reveal the mystery of the kingdom. What was the secret or the mystery of the kingdom? This, this they didn't get. This they didn't know. In fact, the disciples didn't get it until the resurrection. They just couldn't get this through their, their heads. The mystery of the kingdom was, I am bringing the rule of God. The saving, liberating, transforming, sin-forgiving, Satan-defeating rule of God. And so fulfillment is happening, but not consummation. That waits for a second coming. They just couldn't grasp this. The, the kingdom arriving in two stages, that just, it just boggled their mind. The first stage, to suffer, die, save, forgive, triumph, gather a people under the banner of a cross, a crucified Messiah. And someday, white horse, sword coming out of his mouth, blood flowing everywhere. That was the mystery of the kingdom. First, he comes to serve and to die for sinners. This is his work, his main kingly work. So when, when, when the gospels say he's bringing the kingdom, if you let them have their say, it means the king is heading to triumph at the cross. A massive, Massive, authoritative, divine, omnipotent, covenant-keeping, kingly work is going to happen on Good Friday. This is not like Albert Schweitzer said. He, he pushed, he pushed on the wheel of history in order to try to make it turn for the kingdom, and he missed it, and it crushed him. So much for Jesus. That's what Albert Schweitzer taught. And many have similarly said, he tried to bring the kingdom and, and it couldn't work. He got killed and it was all a great tragedy. But his ethic is wonderful. So nobody calls him stupid in America. That's not what happened. This thing was planned from the beginning. And as son of God, son of man, Messiah and king, he knew exactly what he had come to do. And he said it over and over again. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.33. I remember those just because they're so easy to remember. 9.31, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. And after three days, I'll be raised. And they didn't, they just couldn't get that the Messiah would suffer like this. That was his central work. So his person divine in his work coming to die. Now, here's what he said about his death. A couple of things. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. So, he's saying, I have come to lay down my life as a ransom for many. That's why I'm here. That's my kingly work. Ransom paying, ransom paying. And then at the Last Supper, this cup, 
is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant, new covenant. This cup is the new covenant. What's the new covenant? Had, Had these what, three or four elements? One of them was their sins will be forgiven. This is Jeremiah 31. Their sins will be forgiven. Um, he will write the law on their heart, and he will be their God. And if you pull in Ezekiel 36, he will put his spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes. When Jesus died, that's what he bought and secured. The new covenant, sealed with the blood of Jesus, was secured at the cross. And there's the connection with obedience. I will write my law upon their hearts, and I will cause them to keep my statutes. The atoning work of Jesus is the purchase of the empowerment of the new covenant people. So Jesus is explicitly linking his divine, saving, atoning work with the achievement of impossible commands. And he's doing it all for the glory of God. Now, of course, the mission of Jesus in the first coming in his kingly work and the arrival of the kingdom was more than to die. Uh, He said to John the Baptist, remember, um, John the Baptist sent to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? He was very confused. Poor John. I just love John the Baptist. I love him because his, his, his life is absolutely tragic. Just as faithful as they come. Jesus said of John the Baptist, there's never been a man born among women who's greater. That's what he said. And how did he die? The whim of a dancing girl absolutely absurd he tells the truth just like God wants him to you may not live with your brother's wife they throw him in jail and he's sitting there saying God I'm faithful I I kept my conscience I did what you said he hears about Jesus and he's not mustering a political following and he's confused I I baptized him And I'm in jail. You don't go to jail when the Messiah comes. Other people go to jail. (laughs) I sit on his right hand or his left. And and the, the door opens. And there's a man with a sword. And he says, bend over. Why? This girl, she danced. And, and, uh. Ask for your hand. Can you imagine what must have gone through his head? I mean, have you ever been in a position where you thought the Lord wasn't paying attention? I mean, I just, I love this man. I just, if, if I ever in my ministry enter a phase where it feels like everything is absurd, I hope I remember John. Because Jesus said, greatest man that ever walked the earth. And he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. That's you. (laughs) 
So Jesus sent back these words to John. Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And then he probably softened his voice. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And he meant that I'm not leading a political following. I'm just on my way to the cross like you, John. You and me. Don't be offended. It's who I came to be. But the healings were real. Three resurrections were real. The, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame walked. Good news is preached to the poor. That's all kingdom work. And it was all foretaste of what's going to happen at the end of the age, all pointing and signs toward the day when he comes on that horse and the whole world is made new and there isn't any more blindness or deafness or disability or depression or sin anymore. That's what he's all pointing to. And then he died and he was raised on the third day and he spent 40 days vindicating his resurrection by doing things like eating fish and saying, ghosts don't eat fish. That's what he said. In order to convince them, don't call me a ghost. Touch me. Put your hand in the wounds. Give me a piece of fish. All, all showing the kind of body we would have some. According to Philippians, I'm not going to quote any text outside the Gospels. I almost slipped. Obedience now. So I, I, I've tried to paint a picture of what Jesus thought about his atoning work and his divine person. Just a sketch from his own words and from the Gospels. And now we connect it to obedience. Um, on the basis of who he was and on the basis of his work, his atoning work and his rising, again, he begins to make or he makes demands. And they cannot be separated from who he was and, and what he did. For example, let's take Zacchaeus. Jesus says, right after commenting on Zacchaeus, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's, that's Luke 19.10, and it's two verses after he had gone into Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus simply because Jesus identified with him and became and offered him his fellowship, said, Today I give half of what I own to the poor and I restore everything I've stolen fourfold. And Jesus says, Salvation came to this house today. For I came to seek and to save the lost. So how does it connect? Here's a rich man who didn't turn away. Here's a rich man who didn't say, I'm leaving because I'm very rich and I'm not going to... He just began to give things away. He was transformed and the comment Jesus makes is, I came to save. 
I came to save. Connecting his own saving work and this financial transformation of a human heart. He's not depending on his riches anymore. He's not stealing from people anymore. Something radical, new, impossible has happened to Zacchaeus. And Jesus interprets it, I came to save. This is why I die. This is why I go to the cross. This is what I am in the world for. Well, let me draw all this to a close. It's all big picture kind of stage setting for tomorrow's particulars of commands. But let's close with a few thoughts about the title for the conference and the title for the book, what Jesus demands from the world. I, you, you should ask, and uh, many have, why did you choose the word demand? Why not command or... I'm aware. I thought long and hard about this. Maybe I made a mistake. Some people say I have. But I thought long and hard that the word demand has, for some, most maybe, connotations of harsh, severe, strict, stark, austere, abrasive. And the reason I chose it anyway is because I wanted to confront forcefully underlying feelings or convictions that make people resistant to Jesus' authority. Because I think, I hope I don't offend anybody, that a person who has really come to terms with the absoluteness of Jesus' authority Verse 18 of Romans of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Anybody who's really come to terms with the absoluteness of that authority will not stumble at this word. And I hoped, second reason, that choosing an offensive word in the title that by the end of the book, I could make it sweet. So that even the word demand from this person on the basis of this work would be sweet. That, that's the reason. I think it would be a cheap spin to try to give the impression Jesus wasn't abrasive or severe. To his adversaries, he said things like, children of hell, fools, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. That's abrasive. That's, that's more abrasive than this little word. And to his friends, he said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Wait, just can you imagine me standing up and saying on a Sunday morning? If all you, all you Bethlehem family of mine being evil, well, they'd take it, but <laughs> it, it, it's not sweet, it's not gentle, it's blunt kind of in your face 
or to his really good friend Peter, who stuck his foot in his mouth as much as Martin Luther did. Get behind me, Satan. I don't know if he used that tone of voice. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I mean, he could have said that softer. Get behind me, Satan. He's your friend. Calling him satanic. Well, he's acting satanic. And trying to keep me from going to the cross. Or at the end of his life, when he's ready to go back to heaven, um, he says to Peter, referring to John's destiny, what is that to you? Follow me. Jesus was a no-nonsense, blunt uh, communicator. Most, I, did a, I did a study of the Gospels one time. I took my Greek Testament back in 1980 and 81 and just slowly read through the Gospels, putting a T-E and a T-O in the margin. T-E for tender and T-O for tough. Everywhere he sounded one or the other to me. You should try it sometime. A lot of T-O's. Way more T.O.'s. At least given Western sensibilities. I don't know that first century sensibilities were as vulnerable as we are emotionally. Oh, don't talk to me that way. You'll hurt me. I'll have to go to a counselor. Because you hurt me so bad. It could be that, that their skin was a good deal thicker in the first century so that Jesus didn't come across as blunt as he comes across to us. But you should just try it sometime and then maybe it would, it would grow you up out of the 20th, 21st century in, into a, a more whole condition. My aim is to take all that toughness and to so understand it in his commands, which we'll tackle tomorrow, and I'm almost done, in the light of his work and person, and make all that bluntness and all that forcefulness and all that abrasiveness be, that's my friend. That's my Jesus. That's my Savior. That's the one who loves me more than I could ever dream of being loved. I will let him address me with every possible command he thinks is good for me. And I will trust every one of them. Um, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So the command, go teach them everything, teach them to observe everything, is preceded by, I have all authority. I'm using that tone of voice to, to capture the demand forcefulness of it. And at the end, change my tone of voice, behold. They're kind of nervous. He's leaving. He just shook them with his, you're going to go into really hard I mean, let's be anachronistic Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist places where they don't want you to come. You're going to go there because I have authority there. I want disciples there. I want them in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, all over the world. I'm laying claim to the nations. And then he changes his tone of voice and says, behold, I'm going to be with you. I will stand by you. And how sweet that has been 
to thousands of missionaries over the centuries in crisis. If nobody else is there in this dank prison, there's one person here because he whispered in my ear years ago, I will never leave you. That's sweet. So the, the tough is there and the sweet is there. Sandwiching, teach him to observe everywhere. And the last thing I would comment on is the word world in this title. What Jesus demands from the world. Dare he? Did he dare to say this was all for the world? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Yes, he did. All people groups everywhere. Just think of it. It's breathtaking. Everywhere you go on the planet and you walk into an absolutely strange cultural, ethnic, everything's different. It's weird. It's just so strange. You don't know how you could live here. You could hardly breathe here because of the way it smells here and because it looks here and it feels so demonic and so dark and so foreign. And Jesus says, I have total authority here. Total authority here. I mean for you to make disciples here. So my answer is absolutely yes, he has a claim on the world. And you might ask this question, and I'll I'll stop here. When he makes all these commands, hard commands, are they commands just for his disciples? Or are they commands for the world? It's a trick question. Because the answer would be, Yes, just for his disciples and make disciples everywhere. There's nobody in the world who can say, these these commands don't count for me because I'm not a Christian. Because Jesus would say, you should be a Christian. You should follow me. So follow me. And Jesus said it, they would. Because Matthew just stood up and did it. We say, follow him. And the net is drawn and the elect come. So tomorrow, here's what we're going to do. On that foundation, that broader big picture understanding, we're going to just jump right in and take a cluster of commands and uh, try to see how it really works. How does the the work of Christ and the authority of Christ together with the demands of Christ begin to produce not a a slavish, burdensome lifestyle of, oh, I have a commander, 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 do, 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 do. All he ever says is do, but rather a liberating, transforming, powerful, impossibility-producing life of obedience to the glory of God. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for helping me and us. These folks have been so gracious to listen all these minutes. And, oh, I pray that what we have seen of you would go home. Just go down deep. I so much want to be a more obedient, more God glorifying, more atoning work dependent follower of Jesus. And I know I speak for hundreds. So be pleased, Father, to not leave us alone as we go home now, but 
all night long, be there, our teacher by the Holy Spirit. Glorify yourself now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.